1: Problems present themselves through conflict, miscommunication, creative differences, unclear expectations, and motivational issues. ARC Integrated is here to address these challenges through executive coaching and customize interactive trainings. Create lasting positive change that will improve your bottom line and create a culture that attracts talent and reduces turnover by going to arcintegrated.com. That's ARCintegrated.com. What if investing in each other could change the world. I'm Joel Skeen with bizradio.us, and this is The Mindful Marketplace. Welcome back. Welcome back to The Mindful Marketplace here on bizradio.us. And if you're a first-time listener, I want to give you a special welcome and thank you for your time here. Um, This is the program where we talk to the entrepreneurs, advisors, industry leaders, investors, and economic experts who are not only solving a market problem and making a profit, but who are also solving a social problem and making an impact. And it's where we learn how to connect our money, our businesses and our values to our community and ourselves. Today, I am incredibly excited to get to be talking with someone I've wanted to have on the show since its first inception, since the very first episode we did about a year and a half ago. His name is Kevin Doyle-Jones. He's the founder of the Impact Investing Conference known as SOCAP. He's the co-founder of Impact Impact Hub Coworking. (laughs) Try saying that a bunch of times. And co-founder of Neighborhood Economics. Uh, Cannot wait for you guys to get to hear from and learn from Kevin. But first, the balance sheet assets, liabilities, debts, and investments. First in the assets column, uh, I want to talk about something called community-owned real estate. There was a recent article in Nonprofit Quarterly, and it addresses one of the biggest problems facing small and local businesses, which we love here on the Mindful Marketplace. And that issue is the rising cost of real estate that can make it harder for mom and pop businesses to compete with the multinational corporations. From the article, it says, one tool to preserve small businesses is mission-driven land acquisition. If small businesses can have a share in the property they activate, they will have much more power to stave off gentrification and to stay in their community. If you own, you have more agency to choose whether you'd like to stay in your community or leave. When you rent, your ability to stay depends on the goodwill of your landlord and the clarity of your lease, if you have one. Um, A group called Inclusive Action is taking an Is taking action on this model in California, and they have acquired five commercial buildings that today are home to 21 businesses and nonprofits. The vision is to keep these properties off the speculative market and create ownership opportunities for long term tenants in the future. All right, in the liabilities column, you know, we've often talked in this column about the problem of inflation that's been getting a lot of attention recently, but really has been a growing problem for decades now. Um, one of the factors in the recent inflation rise comes from big banks charging higher interest rates on their loans, like mortgages, but paying lower interest to their account holders on things like savings accounts and CDs. My bank actually charges me $25 to have an account rather than giving me any interest. <laughs> this is why big consumer banks like J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo have actually seen record profits while their lenders and depositors struggle. They have been... Um, able to charge more for loans as the Fed has lifted benchmark interest rates to a 22-year high without having to pass on um, higher savings interest rates for depositors, particularly retail customers. JPMorgan Chase reported a 35% jump in profits for the third quarter as a result, and the biggest U.S. banks continue to reap the benefits from higher interest rates and lower than normal loan losses. All right, in the debts column, actually got some good news in the debts column for once. (laughs) Um, Columbus, Ohio residents are actually having their medical debt canceled. Medical debt is a leading cause of bankruptcy in America with major physical and emotional tolls on patients' health. But in Columbus, Ohio, the Mount Carmel Health System, Nationwide Children's Hospital, the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center, and the Ohio Health um, are collectively writing off $335 million in debt for care received between the years of 2015 and 2020. This is expected to impact around 340,000 local residents, the city estimates, with an average amount canceled coming nearly to $1,000 per person. Um, Just as a reminder, in order to help combat the debt crisis, the Mindful Marketplace here has partnered with local financial tech company Quility to provide all of our listeners with a free customized report on how you can best eliminate Personal or business debt, so you can protect your retirement accounts and other assets against any type of loss, including market downturn, and get a free um, and get free from debt by going to mindfulmarketplaceshow.com and click on the eliminate debt tab to get your free report. Lastly, in the investments column, um, impact and community investing is getting more attention in Forbes. Um, you know, I've often pointed listeners for community investing to the resources such as the Main Street Journal, and Impact Alpha. But recently, this topic has been getting more attention, including a recent article in Forbes titled How Place-Based Impact Investing Can Benefit Investors and Communities. You should definitely read the whole article, but I'll leave you with this quote about place-based impact investing. Quote, the benefits of place placing funds in specific geographic regions, addressing local challenges, driving economic growth, and developing social and environment progress are easy to see as the impact investing landscape evolves embracing these principles of place-based impact investing can create a brighter more sustainable future for communities around the world and i think that is a great place to bring in our guest for today he is in some ways kind of a, a godfather of community impact investing <coughs> um, and he happens to live right here in our in our home in western north carolina where biz radio is located in Buncombe county um so thank you so much for spending your time with us here this morning kevin welcome to the show
0: well thanks joel that was a great bottom line i really appreciate uh, a lot of what you what you just said uh, that is something i want to go into further i wonder if you have the links to those on your site
1: Yeah. Yeah. We put up, um, on our, on our, um, on our notes for each episode, we put up, um, you know, I I put up that balance sheet for people to be able to access that I'm still building out the website. We're getting there, (laughs) but, uh, but, uh, yeah. So I I guess for our listeners, um, who don't know who you are, um, you know, I guess, where do you come from and how did you personally uncover impact and community investing in your own life?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, um, I got into impact investing by failing to solve malaria. Uh, okay. And um, <laughs> after I realized that a couple of years in Swaziland and Mozambique, that people who, uh, the, the, the people who solve uh, uh, malaria were more like patient community organizers who listen and move at the incremental pace of change of the people in sub-Saharan Africa. And I was a successful serial entrepreneur and sold at a good time. And my daughter asked me, dad, what's your life about? So I went off to try to do good to make my life make sense. And I realized, geez, I'm really bad at actually being on the ground and doing that level of patience. And from that, um, we stumbled into doing what was called a, uh, a social venture fund. And, um, uh, So we wanted to invest in businesses that did good but solved a problem. Uh, And uh, we had a a way of looking at it. It was called Good Capital. I did it with the founder of Calvert's Community Investment Note, Tim Freudlich. And we thought there should be a cost of doing good in these deals that are now called impact. And if it was just a deal that did good at market rate, that was not an impact deal. We We thought there should be a cost of doing good. So we were wanting to invest in a fair trade coffee company. And fair trade coffee means that they pay higher than market wages. And so that was an easy way to measure the impact. This is what you would pay a typical coffee grower. Here's what you would pay the people in the co-op. And we, oddly enough, um, got, as we're raising this fund called Good Capital, we got into Bill Gates' office because we wanted to invest in a fair trade coffee company that was led by one of his former direct reports. And at 16 seconds in, Gates stood up and he said, stop, I can't be around this idea. And he put his hands to his throat he says, you know, this idea hurts, I can't be around it. And he said, listen, I, I have two pockets. I want to put all the money in the world in one pocket. And then I put some of that money in a smaller pocket to do good with. And if you see there's a link between my giving and my investing, you have to leave. And we got kicked out of two other billionaires' offices making the rounds to raise that fund. <clears throat> they let us pay for breakfast before they said they didn't want anything to do with the concept. And I realized that the problem was not what we were selling. The problem was the way our investors were thinking. Two-pocket thinking was the dominant way. You invest for return, you give for good. It, there were the children of Milton Friedman, who was a prominent economist, Mm-hmm. who led to rapacious capitalism and that is still around. Uh, predatory hedge funds owe a debt to Milton Friedman. And um, we said, no, you can think like a philanthropist and act like an investor. So we started a, uh, a conference because there are a lot of these funds starting, and people couldn't deal with the concept. And so we said, let's make this like a festival, and they want to be here. Uh, this was SOCAP back in 2008. And they will, and we were also uh, acting in response to a moral hunger. It happened, uh, our conference was six weeks after Lehman Brothers went under and we were kind of a flight to hope. And we were under a hundred people and Lehman Brothers went under and we had 600 people because everybody knew everything was broken. And we led SOCAP for uh, a decade and it became the biggest in the world pretty quickly. It was kind of wild, uh, you know, Three months before, I was thinking of pulling the plug, you know, and it would have cost me 40000 dollars, and I, I wasn't looking forward to it. But you know, thankfully, the economic downturn made everybody hungry for an alternative, and and there was also in that a, a moral hunger. And we root to three thousand people uh, from sixty five countries who would and it's where the industry still gathers. I'll be there next week. But after a while we realized that SOCAP only worked for some people. And I got an African-American woman who asked me, Hey, why are there more African entrepreneurs scholarship than there are African American? And I mm-hmm. looked and I said, Oh, look, there are actually more Kenyans and Ugandans this year than there are African Americans. And as a Mississippi southerner, I was not surprised at that reaction uh, by, and we scholarship about a hundred entrepreneurs from around the world. Because, you know, in the First Baptist Church in Itawamba County, the only person of color who ever came in the front door was a doctor from the mission field in Tanzania. And all the other people of color came in through the kitchen or the repair shed. And that's just just how it is. Uh, It's easier for uh, white Americans to invest in Africans. And uh, with African-Americans, I ran into their own politics and their their history of guilt. So then I started realizing that, why aren't there more African-Americans at SOCAP? And so we had big uh, people leading funds up on stage and it didn't make any difference. And uh, I I realized from Jessica Norwood, whose new book is out, uh, What If... uh, can't think of her name, but her, her, the name of her book. Her book is just out. And we launched the Runway Project because the, the problem was friends and family gap. They didn't have friends and family money, so they didn't get to try and fail and then move on to institutional funding. So I, I created a fund, here. I, tried, I worked on that a decade ago i Have worked on it with uh, Stephanie Swepson Twitty and Stephen Lawrence at Eagle Market Streets here in Buncombe County. And we've created a fund to solve the friends and family gap. And we solve it by equity uh, that's patient and that pays revenue share. And we've gotten into the county budget in Buncombe County for two years because we've proven to be a low cost job creator. And, and 90%, here's why the problem matters. 90% of black owned businesses are sole proprietors. They never hire the fourth employee, the, the, the third full-time employee. And that's because they don't have this kind of funding. They can't handle CDFI loans from uh, Mountain BizWorks or anywhere or any other place. They don't get the funding to grow enough to handle debt. That. So that's, mm-hmm. from that, we realized we needed to build a conference focused on the folks that didn't get the money. And mostly that was people of color, uh, African-Americans, uh, Hispanics, indigenous. And we call that neighborhood economics. And uh, we're having a conference in February in San Antonio. And we convened the people who are repairing local economies. And there's a lot of financial innovation at the grassroots level that's getting economic power to folks who haven't had it before. So community ownership of real estate, as you mentioned, and innovative housing solutions. We've got a session in San Antonio uh, by some folks coming out of immigrant savings circles. And those are actually huge, bigger than all the international development that goes overseas. And that's circles of women who pitch their money in every week. And in 10 weeks, they get that money. But it's a collective savings thing. And then they're building assets. And from that, they're replicating a fund in San Antonio and in Austin that helps the best of those saving circles those those people who lend to each other to uh, you know uh, when times are bad or to buy a washing machine Mm -hmm. that can get a down payment on a house and housing stability and we're working with a uh, we're supported by the macarthur foundation now and they've got a, a program for men coming out of jail turns out the best way and the most cost effective way to work with men coming out of uh, prison, formerly incarcerated, is to get them an ownership of a house. And that actually reduces the cost to the government, cuts recidivism. So there's a loan fund in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, that's funded by them that we're gathering. So innovative solutions that solve economic justice. That's that's part of our conference.
1: I, I I love that so that reminds me of back when I was a social worker working for chronically homeless folks in the Detroit area it was so obvious that once people actually had some sort of stability and you know didn't have to worry about where they were going to sleep each night that it was so much easier for them to become, more healthy to become more productive to become all the things that we want to see from them instead of the other way around of asking them to you know get their life in order and then we you might get some housing assistance you've said so many things that i want to dig into in this time but i guess the first thing i want to loop back to is that moment when you were talking to bill gates and you know other other large funders and um what you said about kind of them feeling like that link is is insurmountable, that, you know, we've got to have them this side of this with this hand, I'm going to be making and maximizing profit. And then with this hand, I'm going to be giving a little bit of that profit away to the community. And you're saying, what if we bridge those gaps? What if there was not such a huge divide between the money we make and the impact that we have? You know, wh- why do you feel like that? crossing that bridge is, was, or still is for a lot of people, I'm sure, so unimaginable.
0: You know, it is a mindset, Joel, and it is a mindset that has been reified, been solidified, been, been you know, business schools. Well, here's another thing. Uh, the BB&T Bank has uh, gave $30 million about five years ago uh, to a program that would give Small colleges all over the country, $500,000 for an endowed chair, if they would adopt the thinking of Ann Rand, who was really the, the principal uh, oh, yeah. thinker behind, uh, you know, uh, that selfishness that uh, shows up in the market. And so, you know, there is there is a plan to turn out people from business school who will want to put themselves first and that uh, they see that uh, taking a discount to return on, there's nothing wrong with market rate deals that do good, okay? But you can't solve historic systemic injustice at market rate. There is a cost, but the great thing is you don't have to rely on philanthropy to do good. You can invest patiently and do good, uh, you know? And so we're, we're finding with our community equity fund that, you know, we're a reliable, low-cost job creator and we're in the Buncombe County budget for multiple years because we're solving a problem and government can take things to scale uh, that, that uh, the nonprofit social enterprise, in this case, a nonprofit can't do, but going out to for-profit entrepreneurs. So it's, it's a way of thinking, you know, it, it, it goes back to uh, right-wing folks who believe in property rights and they invest for the long term in institutions. They are, you know, they have things that turn the judges thinking their way and they're turning business schools that way. Because if you go to, you know, little podunk college with a $500,000 endowed chair, nobody else is going to their business school in, I'm not saying it's Marshall, but you know, in Marshall or in, uh, you know, App State wouldn't want it, but you know, small liberal arts school with, half a million dollars that solidifies the department. So they're strategic, they're long term, and they want to uh, create the world to maximize their profit. it's, it's it, They believe selfishness is good.
1: Yeah. And what I love about the work that I've witnessed you doing over all these years is that it takes those ideas that people learn in business school about things like innovation and creativity and says well you know like we said at the start of the show what if we use that innovation and creativity not just to make an a profit but also to actually make an impact and even use that innovation and creativity to upgrade the current systems that we have it does feel like that sort of mindset is so pervasive it's kind of like a you know, I've been reading some Mark uh, Mark Fisher books, and you know, he talks a lot about this. And we're in this strange cultural moment where, for a lot of people, it seems like it's more um, we can. It's easier to imagine terraforming Mars than it is to do economics differently <laughs> than to do our investments differently.
0: Um, yeah, you know, I would say there is a new economy forming, and mm-hmm. uh, that you know, and it's generational. More young people are not buying in. And if you look at the big picture, you won't see it. But if you look at 100 small pictures around the world or around the country, it is happening. And so I think there is a new economy that is forming. And you can't look at the, you know, the dominant empire always looks like it's on top until the Visigoths bring it down. I think the, the old the old economy is on, on its last legs. And people are, you know, with, with the pandemic, people realize that their big businesses are turning them into commodities. Yeah. And that's
1: why the lies of union elections. No, absolutely. And so what I'm excited about is on the second half of this episode, this is going to be a two-part episode for you guys listening in. Um, Please tune in next week. What we're going to dig in with Kevin Kevin here is what does that new economy actually look like? Um, What are some of these? um, And how is your group, specifically Neighborhood Economics and the SOCAP Conference, contributing to that? And, you know, what are you excited about? I'm excited to kind of get to dream with you about the direction that things are headed and where things are going um, here. So in the meantime, um, if you're listening on podcast, go ahead and listen to the second episode. If you're listening live, you'll have to wait till next week. Sorry about that. But definitely tune in to bizradio.us and then also listen to the other stations, uh, the other hosts on the station Uh, We have tons of great entrepreneurial hosts that are all local entrepreneurs here in the Western North Carolina area. Great guests. Um, Definitely check everything out and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartMedia, Stitcher, Buzzsprout, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure to tune in next week for the rest of my conversation with Kevin Jones. And until then, take care of yourself and take care of someone else.